I want to do some background here, okay? The, the, our text only makes sense in light of other texts. And as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that there's one author of all 66 books in the Bible, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has wrote through men. However, he is the author, the capital A author. And so whether it's Paul writing, or it's Luke writing, or it's Mark writing, or it's Isaiah writing, there's one capital A author behind the entire Bible and that is the Holy Spirit. And so we can expect, if there's one author, there should be internal consistency throughout the entire 66 books, spanning over 1,500 years, right? We should expect there to be consistency. In fact, this is one of the greatest arguments for the reliability and truthfulness of the Bible. Its consistency doesn't make it true, but it confirms its truthfulness. So, in light of Philippians 1:12 through 18, I want to jump into Romans 15 for just a moment. Here's why. The letter of Philippians was written from Roman imprisonment. Roman imprisonment. We read about this in Acts chapter 28. We'll visit there in a minute. And so Paul is at Rome, and in the book of Romans, he is writing from Corinth to Rome. And we gain some insights into his plans, his ambitions, the way that he thought, which will give us background and help when we jump into our text in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. So let's start here with this fantastic map. Okay, this is the Mediterranean world. This is the Roman world in the first century. And these are, I know you can't see it, I apologize. This dotted line here, Paul's first missionary journey, John Mark returns to Jerusalem. As you know, the book of Acts, John bails on, on Paul and Barnabas. And then this is Paul's second missionary journey. But you can see in his second missionary journey, leaves from Antioch, north, West, northwest, boom, Macedonia is where Philippi is, and you can see Philippi right here. He lands at the port city of Macedonia, Neapolis, and he makes his way northwest to Philippi, the leading city of Macedonia, the capital city. It was a Roman colony. Rome had colonized Philippi, and so think of it as a little Rome. Roman culture, Roman food, Roman dress, Roman Therefore, it would be helpful for us to see what Paul wanted to do as far as Rome was concerned in his thinking. And we have that here in Romans 15, 18 to 21. Now, I'm going to give some commentary, but we're going to fly through this, okay? Remember, this is background, helpful background that will unlock Roman, I'm sorry, Philippians 1, 12 to 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Verse 18 of Romans 15. What you need to know about this is Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself in Acts chapter 9. We'll visit that in just a moment too. To be a apostle, which means sent one, authorized, sent one, empowered by Jesus himself to non-Jewish people, the Roman world at the time, the Greek-Roman world, Greco-Roman. And so Paul is a missionary to people like us. I don't think there's any Jewish ethnic people in here. So Paul is our guy, if you will, if we want to be ethnic about it. He's our guy. He's our 
missionary. And his mission was to plant churches in areas or regions where there was no gospel presence, where there was utter darkness, no points of light. So we, I think in spiritual light and spiritual darkness. Wherever you see Christians, I imagine like the whole block is dark, like the power has gone out. Yet in the home of a Christian, all the lights are on. Right now outside, there's just darkness. And yet from this building, there's this spotlight coming out. What is it? It's spiritual light and life. Why? Because the God of the universe who dwells in unapproachable light, who is himself light, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's not to say God is made of light, but whatever light is, it points to God. This place, if you will, right now, as God's word, his clarity to you, the revealing of his will goes out. There's light just coming out onto you, and it's going up into the spiritual world, the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 calls it. So Paul's saying here, look, I'm not going to talk about anything except what Jesus has done through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, why does he say obedience instead of faith? Because isn't Paul always about, hey, it's not by works, it's by faith. You're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. Why obedience here? Here's the answer. Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. You see, we're not saved by works. We're not forgiven by the good things we do. When we are saved and are forgiven by the works of Jesus Christ alone and by our placing our trust in his work, life, death, burial, resurrection, we are saved. However, what will happen when you are saved is you will begin to be obedient. Obedient to what? Obedient to the moral law of God, which is laid out in the 66 books, his clearly revealed will. And so if the mission is to teach them to obey all I've commanded, all Paul's saying here is, look, I'm not just about conversion. I'm about them being discipled which is what we're about. It's our number one core commitment. Make disciples who make disciples. We're not okay with you just converting. We want you to be discipled and enabled and helped to obey. Do you know why obedience is so important? Not because you'll lose your salvation if you're unobedient. It has nothing to do with fear even. Because listen, the wages of sin is, say it, death. Therefore, obedience is the opposite side of that scale, and obedience means life. Life. And I understand obedience is hard and sacrificial and painful, but friends, it's the path to life. Okay. By word and deed. So he wants the obedience to be coming from the mouth, the the text, the clear revealed will of God, be renewed by the transforming of your mind, Romans 12, 2. And deed. James told us it's not just about word, it's also about deed. You, sh- you say, I have faith, okay, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's the deed part, okay? Faith without works is dead, James says. That's what Paul's saying here. Okay, Paul and James agree. 19, how does he bring the Gentiles to obedience? By the power of signs and wonders. How does he do that? By the power of the Spirit of God. Now, Paul was healing 
sick people, casting out demonic spirits with a word, bringing dead people back to life. These are called signs and wonders. Signs always point beyond themselves to something else, right? You go to the parkway and it's like, all right, west towards the airport, east towards Pittsburgh if you're already out west. And so the sign, you don't stop at the sign and look at it. It's pointing you somewhere else. Where do I want to go? And so the sign points beyond the sign to the power of God, to the messenger of God and what his message is. And Paul's message was always Jesus. Signs and wonders are not the deal. They're pointers to a greater reality. However, God used powerful signs and wonders through Paul to confirm his authenticness as a messenger from God and to confirm the message so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Wow. Okay. So Illyricum is up here, north of Macedonia. Here's Jerusalem way down here. He's saying that I have traveled the entire Mediterranean world preaching the gospel. And look what he says here. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Wait, that's a big, massive land, and you fulfilled, you're done, you're finished? Only church planning and discipleship can explain that verse. Paul sees his mission as complete when he plants a church, raises up leaders, and he says, all right, I've done my work here. I need to go establish another community of light somewhere else where there isn't one. And so in his mind, the entire Mediterranean, Greco-Roman world was full of points of light, and he can move on to another space of darkness. It's the only way that makes sense. That was Paul's missionary strategy. And so, verse 20, I, and thus, in light of that, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. I'm not interested in going to somewhere where, where Jesus is already known. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, verse 21, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 15. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Roman Christians, I've wanted to come to you. I've desired to come to Rome. I've desired to come and encourage you and receive some benefit from you and you from me. Yet, because of my mission to preach where Jesus is not known, I have been hindered from coming to you. Paul did not start the church at Rome. Paul did not have anything to do with the church at Rome. When he wrote the letter uh, to the Romans from Corinth, he didn't know them. He knew Priscilla and Aquila, but that's about it. And so he is unknown to them, and they are basically unknown to him. But look at verse 23. But now, now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. That's amazing. He's talking about the entire Greco-Roman world in the Mediterranean area. Since I no longer have any room to work, like I'm getting cramped. What? I'm going to come to you now. Now, now is the time where I can come to you. In 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Okay, now we see what's going on. Spain does not have a community of light yet. And so Paul's ambition is to go to the darkness of Spain and plant a church. And now he's going to go north because you know that Corinth is in um, you know, Greece, Achaia in this day. And so he's going to go north, west, up to Italy and by, by way of Spain. 
And he's, he says here, I want to be helped by you on my way. What do you think that means? Some scholars have said that Romans is a missionary support letter. Makes sense to me. Paul wants them to help him financially on it. You know how expensive travel was in the first century? You think an airplane costs money? Now imagine traveling by sea and by Uber? No, horse, carriage, chariots, donkeys, walking. Man, travel was so unbelievably expensive. It's no wonder why people barely made it out of their little towns. And so Paul's like, look, I'm coming to Rome. Guys, I wrote you this greatest of all letters, the best letter ever written, and at least you can help me on my way to Spain to continue planting churches. It's a missionary church planting support letter, okay? And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. All right, so here's why I brought this in. Paul's desire is now to go to Spain. And he wants to be helped by the church at Rome on his way. His desire is to go to Rome. And what's interesting about that is he makes it to Rome, but not the way he wanted to make it to Rome. How did Paul finally make it to Rome? Chains. In fact, that's our text. Let's look at it. Philippians 1, 12 to 13. I want you to know, brothers, that could be translated brothers and sisters. It doesn't demand a maleness on that brothers there. That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 12 of Philippians 1. Now, what, what the Philippians are tempted to do here is to say, Paul is the church planting apostle and the gospel is connected to him. And if, if he's in prison, the gospel is imprisoned. If Paul is locked up in chains, the gospel is locked up in chains. The church is now going to diminish. No more missions to the darkness. That's the fear. And what Paul's saying is, no, guys, nope. Actually, what has happened to me now that I'm in prison in house arrest, in Rome, Acts chapter 28, it has actually served to advance the gospel, to, to push it further, to make it go past where it's already gone with me, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. You could translate in the whole praetorium, that's the, the kind of soldier that was guarding him, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now watch this. This is Paul arriving chained to a Roman soldier in Rome. Remember, he wanted to go to Rome. You saw that in Romans 15. And when he came into Rome, he made it. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he's kind of on a house arrest, but instead of an ankle bracelet, it's a Roman soldier bracelet, literally chained to him. He can't go to the restroom without a soldier, friends. You like that? You like that idea? Let's imagine soldiers in those days. Some of you were soldiers. But imagine a soldier without gunpowder and weapons. This is brute force ruggedness. These are the same soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. Roman soldiers, those guys. Chained to the apostle Paul. These are rough dudes. 
I'm sure they're doing push-ups as Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. 500, 501. Paul's like, <laughs> my imagination. These are the last two verses in the last chapter of the book of Acts. He, Paul, lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense. You could translate that in his own hired dwelling. He rented a place. And welcomed all who came to him. Listen, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What is he saying here? I want you to know, brothers in, in Philippi, that what has happened to me, my house arrest, my being chained to a Roman soldier, has actually caused the gospel to advance. Why? Because it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the whole praetorium and to all the rest that my imprisonment is in Christ. Imagine this. God wanted to save rugged, tough Roman soldiers. How's he going to accomplish that mission? He's going to chain the greatest missionary ever to them. And the gospel advances by Paul gospeling every one of the Praetorium Guard. They would change shifts every four to six hours. And I could just see every shift change, Paul gets a smile on his face. You can't get away. They're, they're there as Onesimus is in the room. And he writes the letter to Philemon and sends Onesimus off with it. The Roman soldiers are there in the room when the letter of Colossians is being written. He's there in the room when Tychicus takes the letter to the church at Ephesians or, or at Ephesus and, and he's sent off. And, all, and people are coming and he's evangelizing. And not only are they overhearing conversation, you better believe that Paul is talking to them about the gospel. And we get this interesting little hint at the end of Philippians where he says, oh, and by the way, those of Caesar's household greet you. Why would they greet the church? Well, because they're a part of the church by way of the advancement of the gospel because God's plan, listen, friends, was for Roman soldiers and Roman elites and for judges and for those who worked in the courts to be converted. And this is Paul's mission. This is Paul's mission. Paul wouldn't have chose this way, this method, this means, but God said, this is how I'm going to do it. You're going to get locked up you're going to be chained, but you're not going to be chained. The gospel is not going to be chained, and therefore you are going to accomplish the mission that I gave you at the front. Where do we see that? Well, we see that in Acts chapter 9. You see, after Paul is murderously hunting down Christians, he is confronted by the risen Jesus in glory on the road, and he is so thoroughly converted that Ananias is sent to him to give him his mission. Ananias is one of Jesus' people. He's a prophet. There was a disciple at Damascus, Acts 9, 10. I'm, yeah, Damascus, named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. You remember in Acts when the blinding light of Jesus hit Paul, it literally blinded him physically. And there is something like scales on his eyes at this point, which he can't see. He has to be led by the hand wherever he goes. He is physically blinded, though spiritually he's awake. It's amazing. But Ananias, verse 13, answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And many of us are saying, oh God, please don't ever say that about me. Does that make God evil? If he's going to show Paul how much he must suffer for his name? Is God wrong to wrong you? Is God wrong to wrong me? Or is suffering his greatest tool for growth, for gospel dependence, and for you to move to transformation and eternal life. Friends, it's hard, but this is the Bible. Your suffering is God's means for continued grace in the faith, friends. When everything's going good, you barely pray. You know it. When things are terrible, you're, oh God, I need you. This is what God does. He knows that there is still indwelling sin in us, Romans 7, and if sin is allowed to have its way, it will harden us. How does God keep our hearts soft and towards him? He allows suffering to enter our experience. And for Paul, his suffering has a purpose. His imprisonment is purposeful. Listen, this is encouraging. Your suffering right now, whatever it is, physical, mental anguish, emotional trauma, anxiety, worry about the future, listen, this is God's means for you to call out to him and find him near. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's his tool for you to be brought nearer to him. And friends, we only suffer for a little while. Our suffering is purposed by God to produce in us a steadfastness, a standing in the storm that's raging, a completeness that could not be accomplished any other way. And believe me, if I could choose, go through the door of suffering to growth or go through the door of ease, comfort, and pleasure for growth, I would take the second door. But unfortunately, we don't get to choose which door. And I don't know who has been grown by ease, comfort, and pleasure. No one that I know. But when suffering and trial and trouble hit, we see growth spread. It's like God's miracle grow for you, right? As hard as it is, as painful as it is, it grows us. This is what God does. Suffering does not mean God is against you. It probably means he's for you. All right. For Paul, 
He was shown how much he would suffer for the name. And part of his suffering is here seen in the text. He's chained to a Roman guard, yet he, in his circumstance, does not say, oh God, how could you do this to me? I've paid all my taxes. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I work hard. I love my family. How could you do? No. Paul is being rewarded with imprisonment for doing the work of discipleship, evangelism, and church planting. Doesn't sound like a reward, does it? But friends, we have no idea the eternal reward that Paul is going to have forever. If Paul wasn't in prison, we would probably not have the letter to the Philippian church. We'd probably not have the letter to the Ephesian church. We would probably not have the letter to Philemon or the letter to the Colossian church. So part of what God was doing, he was locking Paul up so he could get some writing done because he knew in 2019 you would need it and I would need it. And God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts beyond understanding. Oh God, why would you do it like this? And what he would say to you, friends, is this. He would say, I can see further than you, and I can see the multiple complexities of every event in your life, and they will ultimately all work for the better, and that's why they're here with you today. Now, we need faith to believe that, but this is part of what this text is teaching us, that God accomplishes beautiful and good gospel-advancing things through hard times in your life and in my life. He sees all the products of what suffering does. We only feel it in the moment, and it feels like we're going to get crushed, doesn't it? Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The word there is the gospel word. And what he's saying is, far from being a hindrance to the gospel, though I'm chained, the gospel is not chained because of my imprisonment and my boldness for the gospel, it has inspired others to be bold. You know how this works. We, we emulate heroes who sacrifice. The best of our movies are the ones where the hero is sacrificial. By the way, that's the gospel story. You guys have seen the Endgame Avengers. It was only good because, I'm not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> Tyree was like, no, don't, don't, don't. Okay, you got to see it. There's my plug, all right. So this is what has happened here. This is what has happened here. Most of the brothers, where? Probably in Rome. You know why it was so hard to preach the gospel in Rome? For the same reason it's so hard for you to preach the gospel here. The cultural pressure was to privatize the faith. Listen, we don't care what you do in the privacy of your own home. We don't care what you do in a building on Sunday, but you better not bring that into the public square. You better not bring that out into the streets. You better not try to convert me. Friends, in our day, it's a pressing secularism or a militant atheist push. In this day, it was Caesar worship. The Caesar cult that said, Caesar is Lord. And if you said, no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, you were locked up, possibly killed. And so we're, we're not facing the death threat yet in America. But you will get ostracized. You will be seen as a bigot. You will be labeled as a hater. And hate speech probably is in your future if you continue to share the good news of Jesus. And isn't that interesting? Hate speech could be the good news. It's coming. It's coming. I love you, 
If you're not pressed already to privatize, the pressure is going to be greater and stronger. If you haven't felt it yet, you will. Okay. So what has happened is Paul is, in a sense, a hero. He would not call himself a hero. He calls himself the least of all the saints. So in his own thinking, he's not a hero. He's like, look, guys, line all the saints up. I'm at the back of the line. That's called humility. That's the way. That'd be a good way for you to think about yourself. We often like to think of ourselves in the front, like leading the charge. You know, I'm, I'm the first of the saints. Paul's like, no, no, no. I'm the, li- I'm the last, the least. I don't, even be, I don't even deserve to be called a saint the way I persecuted the church. And yet God used him mightily, probably more than any other man in human history outside of Jesus Christ. That's not an understatement. That's the truth. And so his suffering produced a missionary movement, friends, that is still being felt today. Our network is called Acts chapter 29. We're the next chapter of the church planning missionary effort in the world. And yeah, I understand. We can look around and be like, God's not doing much here. Friends, I understand that feeling. I've seen many people profess and bounce. I've seen many people show up and go do something else. I've seen many people be interested, get poured into, and they're like, I'm out. I get it. Friends, we are to be faithful to God and not get discouraged by lack of fruit or seeming fruit that was not fruit. No, our charge is to preach the gospel with clarity and conviction, make disciples who make disciples, and let God give the growth. Is this not what Paul said? To the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, the increase. God is the one who produces results. It's not up to you. And so don't be discouraged, Chris. Don't be discouraged. Let God handle the fruit and the results. What God did to the Roman Christians was he emboldened them through Paul's imprisonment. Like, all right, if Paul's in prison, I'm following behind him. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now that's amazing. 15 through 17. What he's saying there is, there are some people, this is a real thing, that are literally motivated out of strife and envy and jealousy to preach the gospel. I'm going to show you up. How? I'm going to preach the gospel. That seems so strange. Yet, the jealousy of Paul's fruitfulness was so much a part of some people who called themselves ministers that they were motivated to preach to spite Paul. Can you imagine that? Getting up in the morning and rather than motivation to glorify God and to love people, I'm going to spite you. How am I going to do it? I'm going to preach the gospel. That sounds ridiculous, but that's what Paul's saying. Literally, my deep inner motivation is to cause you trouble. How am I going to do it? I'm going to preach. Jesus. That seems unthinkable, but that's what's being said. The ones who preach from goodwill do it out of love. That should be our motive, friends. Friends, that should be our motive. To love God 
and for the love of people. Friends, you realize we're called to love our enemies. Those who persecute you, those who speak evil against you, those who are not for you, we're called to love them. That's Jesus' words to us, his children, his sheep, his brothers, really, God's children. And so, for the love of God and for the love of people, we proclaim the only power of God unto salvation. And he says, verse 17, that they're not sincere, but they think they'll afflict me in my imprisonment. Notice he says, they think, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, that's their motive. Paul says, sorry, sorry. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You meant to spite me? I don't care. I'm just happy that the gospel is being preached. Watch this. I'm rejoicing right now. See the smile? You can't get me. Like, like that is brilliant. So that means to me that it is possible for people to be out for you, to spite you, to make you envious, to make you jealous, and you can be like, can't touch me. No MC Hammer. You can't touch me. Only those from the 80s get that. (laughs) I'm an 80s kid. And how did he do it? Verse 21. This is the inner psychology of Paul. This is how he thought about the world and about himself. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How was Paul able to face this kind of opposition? Listen, opposition in the form of preaching the gospel. Notice he says they're trying to get at me by their preaching. So backwards, yet that's what's happening. How does he do it? He does it like this. He sees his entire being, his hours, his days, his income, his very life as defined by one singular, all-consuming person. Look, for me to live is Christ. And if I die, all the better. Now, this is Eddie's text for next week, so I'm not going to steal his fire. But what I will say is if we could just gain a little bit of this perspective. Friends, let me, let me encourage you by this. What you're going through right now that you wish was removed, will it matter in 100 years? Like, do you remember what the last five fights with your spouse was about? Can you even give me a semi Clear, play-by-play? What about your kids? The last 10 things they did to just make you want to throw the TV out the window. Can you give me the last five things they've done? Some of you can. I know that. (laughs) And and I would encourage you by this. Love keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13. (laughs) Love keeps no record of wrongs. All right. Friends, listen, here's the point. We get, listen, we get so emotionally flattened by things that don't matter in a hundred years. They feel so mountainous in the moment that we would even destroy our own property and say cutting ugly things to those we love. 
Friends, I understand the temptation to destroy your own property that you have worked so hard to attain just because the emotions are so high. I get it. You know what you do in that moment? You say, oh God, I need you. If you do not take over right now, I am going to have to repent, repent, and repent again. And I don't want to cause damage. Will you take over me in this moment? And if that doesn't work, friends, you just need to get out of that situation. Take a break. Take a walk. Oh, God, cool me down. Cool me down. Cool me down. That's a fantastic prayer to pray when you're at 10 out of 10. When the big red button has been pushed, the oh, God, help repeated a thousand times is perfect i'm not going to ask for hands but i know some of you know exactly what i'm talking about okay and if we could just gain a little bit of this my life is defined by jesus and if jesus is not being touched i'm all good man what joy would fill your hours What joy would fill your weeks? What joy would fill your months? But see, here's the deal. We are so stuck on self. For me to live is me, and to die would be terrible. That's me, 121. I'm there. You're there. And so, oh God, would you give us a little bit of this? A little bit of... Paul's way of viewing the world and himself, that we might be able to escape the ugliness, the sin that's causing death. Friends, the ugliness that you feel is the death that Romans talks about. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what you feel. That's the ugliness that comes from the inside of you. You're feeling it. And you could be free from it. How? How? Oh God, would you give me this perspective? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I don't like to disconnect it from the context, but it's 2 Corinthians 4.18. The context is suffering, outer self wasting away, pressed, persecuted, crushed. And at the end of this long section, he says, so we look to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are unseen are eternal. Friends, that means that the very trouble you're in right now, the thing you can see, is what? Temporary. The thing that you don't see, the way out, the future, the short time of freedom that's coming for you. No sin, no anxiety, no pressure. No fighting, no strife, no jealousy, no envy, only love continually being given to you and coming out of you. Friends, that's coming in a very short amount of time. But if we keep looking at the things that are seen, we are going to be very discouraged, aren't we? The things which are seen, the current fight that I'm in, my job, my life, my me, 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 what I can see. Friends, If God would just give us a little taste of what Paul had, Christ, how is this going to come? This is going to come by the Holy Spirit. That we could even say, man, to die would be great. And not in a morbid, depressed way. Like, I know what that feels like, too. I get those thoughts, man, to die would be better than feeling like this. That's not what Paul means here. 
He doesn't mean I feel so terrible, I'm so upset about being in prison that if I could just die, it'd be better. No, he's saying, if I live, Jesus, I rejoice. But if I die, all the better. This is great. Where's he at? He is chained to a Roman soldier. For what? Tax evasion? No. Stealing? Robbing? No. Theft? No. Preaching the gospel. Doing the work of God. And he doesn't rage against God. How could you do this to me? Haven't I served you with all I have? No. Rather, he says, this is advancing the gospel. This is great. Friends, we know nothing about this. Let's just be honest. We have no idea how to do this. (laughs) How to be in terrible circumstances and rejoice. And I want it. I think you do too. And my hope and prayer, and I'm going to lead us in just a a prayer that God would do this to us now. Um, If God would do this, even just give you a little bit of this, wouldn't it change everything? That, That you could wake up tomorrow in the same situation, but say, I rejoice. I'm glad in him. The peace has come. The peace of God only comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul's perspective was, as long as Christ is preached, I rejoice. Now, upon closing, let me just say this so we don't get this text twisted. And I do still have three minutes, so bear with me. What is not happening in this text, what is not happening in this text, is that the gospel is falsely being preached. How do I know that? Because Paul went off in Galatians 1 when the false gospel was being preached, didn't he? Like, you could just hear him yelling through the text as you read it. He's like, if we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel to you other than the one you received, let him be accursed. None of that here. The true gospel is being preached. It's just he reads right into the motives of these preachers. And he says, yeah, they're doing it to hurt me. But they can't. I'm just happy that Jesus is being preached. And in that, I rejoice. Why? Because for Paul, the salvation of the elect, the salvation of sinners was his life. Why? Because Jesus is glorified when we see him for who he is. The Lord of the universe. The King of kings. And when we proclaim him as Lord, he is glorified. So that's what we want, friends. We want tonight to be able to say, Jesus, you are Lord. What does that mean? That means you get to take control. You get to call the shots. You get to say what happens to me. Even though I would not choose this for myself in a thousand years, you know best. You can see further. You can see more. You can see all the interconnectedness and all the purposes that you have. And I trust you. And then you know what we can pray? We can pray along with the man whose son was demon-possessed in Mark chapter 9, and we can say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Friends, that's a regular prayer of mine. I do believe. I'll check the doctrinal statement, but help my unbelief, because I am tempted to not believe practically. You know what I mean by that. We could say, yes, I believe, yes, I believe, yes, I believe, and it's all in word. It's none indeed. Because if we believed in truth, it would affect how we feel. It would affect how we see. It would affect our perspective on what's happening to us. 
And so we need to get there. We need to move beyond, yes, I understand what that's saying. Yes, I agree with what that's saying. Let's move to a place where it takes root in our attitudes, in our actions, in our affections, in the way we treat people, even those who are hostile to us. Your neighbor you can't stand. The coworker at, at your work who you just can't, oh, I wish she'd open up her mouth. I'll tell her. Your, your sister, your sister-in-law. Maybe it's your own mother, father, son, daughter. Friends, would this truth that we are proclaiming here and agreeing on together, would it take root in the way we live? Oh, God, please. 